Hi, just a quick apology to all my listeners. This episode and next week's episodes apparently had some sort of technical glitch when I recorded them and have sort of a a little tiny skips and pops occasionally in the recording. You can still understand it. So I thought about re-recording them and decided that in the interest of of time, I would not re-record. So please forgive that the quality of these recordings is not perfect. That was a technical glitch in my instruments. So I apologize again and hope that you don't let that distract from the message and that you can still enjoy this episode and next week's episode. And then I think we corrected that. So there shouldn't be a problem after this week and next week. Thank you. Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me this week. We are talking about Matthew 13 and also the chapters Luke 8 and Luke 13. Again, we bounce back and forth from different synoptic authors. And so we have some repetition of some stories, but we have some pretty good messages today that are pretty exclusive to these chapters. First, let me just take a moment and thank those who have gone to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory to subscribe. That really helps me to defray some of the costs of the podcast, and that allows me to keep going. So I'm really grateful for those of you who have been able to do that. If anybody would like to go to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory. And actually today after I record, I'm going to be working on posting some of my notes with the quotes from the various podcasts so that you can find those at the higher levels of subscription on Patreon. And also thanks to those of you who are buying the book Choosing Glory on my website, lilyanderson.com. Those book sales also really helped creating uh, content and keep this podcast going. Let's talk about these wonderful chapters. I'm going to kind of move to verse 9. Here we have again Christ explaining why he teaches in parables. And then he says in verse 9, Who have ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples ask about the parable, and he says in verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, is God a respecter of persons? Never. So he's not selecting who gets to know the mysteries and who doesn't get to know the mysteries. God invites all. I quote this regularly. Joseph Smith said that there is nothing that God has revealed to Joseph that he would not reveal to the least of the saints, or the least of his children, whatever that means, meaning all of us, all of us. He doesn't rank us in importance. We are all precious to God. And then we demonstrate how much we desire to be his people by how we receive. And that's what we see. Let's just go ahead and read the Joseph Smith translation version of next verse, Matthew 13, verse 12. It's in our footnotes. For whosoever receiveth, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever continueth not to receive, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. So it's all about us. It's We're the ones who regulate how much we have when it comes to the things of eternity. The knowledge of the gospel, how much access we have to light, truth, and intelligence, how much access we have 
to revelation. We're the ones who determine all that by how much we are willing to receive. I'm going to tie this also back to Abraham 3. I've talked about this on occasion. Abraham 3. Let's turn to that for a minute. This is verse... 19, and the Lord said unto me, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. I always kind of wince a little bit that God has to put that in print where we might forget that he is superior to us in light, truth, intelligence in every way. But what he's saying here is not that there is just a different level of native IQ or native intelligence in the spirit children of God. What he's saying is that some are willing to receive more than others. That's what makes the distinction. We all have the same opportunities. God is no respecter of persons. He loves all his children, but it's up to us to decide what we choose to receive. Remember from section 93 in the Doctrine and Covenants, we learned that intelligence is light and truth. They're all the same thing. So we gain intelligence if we live by the light and truth that we receive. God starts us all off on a level playing field. Everybody receives the light of Christ when they come to this earth, and he will give more to those who act in light. And now we're bouncing around a little bit in DNC 50. That was actually my first guest spot on Follow Him. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, you can go back and look at the Follow Him episode for Doctrine and Covenants section 50, where I talk about light and truth a lot and how important it is for us to use that light and truth and receive it. And then there's that wonderful verse in that section that says, he that receives light and continueth in God. And what does that mean? That means that we live according to the light that we've received. We try to bring our lives in harmony with that light, truth, and intelligence. We don't ignore it. We don't set it aside. We don't think we know better than God. We continue in that light. We go forward in our lives using the light, truth, and intelligence, applying it to our our daily walk on this planet. And if we continue in God, we receive more light, DNC 50 tells us. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. It's all in our hands, brothers and sisters. We can have what we want. And I quote this one often also, Alma 29, God grant unto men according to their desire. We actually get what we want. What an amazing plan that our Heavenly Father has created that is engineered so perfectly that we actually get what we want. And yet, and we'll talk about this more from time to time, God adds to the justice of of this plan, mercy, so that everybody actually gets more than they deserve. It's a really beautiful plan. Incredible generosity and magnanimity from our Heavenly Father and through the Atonement of Christ that is available to us just for the asking, just for the receiving of it. So that's what we're going to really focus on today, is how we receive and and what can help us and our children learn to receive the light to intelligence of God. I'm going to read a little bit more in Matthew 13, just after verse 12. Therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. So there's a protection here. I'm not making it that plain. If they have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, meaning if they have the desire, 
then they will understand and they will grow and learn. Otherwise, you know what? It's not given to them because they chose not to receive it. And then he talks about this being a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, verse 15, for this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time, and this is a little irony here in scripture, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and she'd be converted and I should heal them. Like, how sad is that? I mean, they close their eyes, their ears, their hearts. Otherwise, you know, they might get healed. They might actually come to me to be healed and blessed and given all that the Father offers to all of his children. And this is really borne out in the parable of the sower, again, which follows here and is also repeated in Luke chapter 8. We know the parable of the sower. Seeds are, are scattered all different places, and some of them hit dry, unyielding place stuff. Some of them hit here and there and the other, and they don't all grow. But the ones that land on good ground, that's the phrase that is used here in Matthew 13, verse 23. He that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bring forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. I'm just going to make a quick note here is that God doesn't care about how large our personal harvest is because he is the Lord of the harvest. And all who choose to receive will receive all that the Father hath. So it's just in this life that we have different journeys, different talents, whatever. Remember the parable of the talents that we're going to come up to later in our study this year. But some are given one, some three, some five. It's it's okay. That's not a big deal. The big deal is what we do with it. Do we receive the seed? Do, do we take our talents and try to improve them? And he's not talking about art and music. He's talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual talents. Are we willing to grow in the ways that we actually have the opportunity to choose to grow? And as we do that, you know, he's like, yeah, there are going to be different kinds of harvests. And what really matters is that they were willing to receive the seed and do something with it, to continue in God, to act upon the truth that they receive. And then I can give them the ultimate harvest in the in the last day. I am going to mention something here as well that I think is just so important. You know, in the next few verses here, while men slept, the enemy comes and sows tares or weeds among the wheat and then goes his way. And so when the blade is spread up and brings forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. And the servant and the householder talk about that a little bit. And the householder tells the servant, don't go pull those weeds right now. Because if you do, the blades of, of the good seed are so tender and young still that if you pull out the weed, you're going to pull out the good stuff also. So let them grow together until the final day. And that's really important to remember too. The way I put it often is that there really are no tear-free zones on this planet until the Savior comes again. So we need to stop, you know, worrying about that. <laughs> the wheat and the tares together grow. This is something that the Lord has told us again and again. So we need to stop fussing about it, so to speak. Stop complaining about the fact that, okay, the church isn't perfect. The membership is not perfect. No organization is perfect. We have wheat and tares growing together. And that's okay. That's okay. It allows us to gain strength if we will. We need opposition. We need to to not try to stand, I should say, on borrowed light. We need to have our own testimony, our own strength, and develop no matter what is around us. 
I remember when we lived in Oklahoma, we, during Chris's graduate program, we met a man named Charlie Coleman, really wonderful member of the church up there. He had been converted to the church in his adulthood with his wife and, and children, wonderful people. And he said that early in the, his membership had been very impressed with the other members of the church. And, you know, there was sort of social conversion to some extent. That happens sometimes because, thankfully, you know, a lot of us are nice people. And I hope that we welcome people in and we reach the hand of fellowship out to everyone. But what Charlie was saying was that he said, I finally, you know, realized that I needed to become the kind of person that I can honestly say now that it wouldn't matter to me if the quorums of the priesthood lined up on the sidewalks from the parking area to the chapel. And if my family and I had to go into the chapel and all of them were yelling at us or spitting on us or whatever, he said, that would not matter. We would still go and worship the Lord. And I thought that was a, a beautiful example of how he understood that, you know, it's okay if the wheat and the tares together grow. That doesn't inhibit his ability to choose God, to remain good wheat and bring forth good fruit. Okay, let's let's go back now and talk about how do we receive this word, that receive the seed or the word of the Lord, the light, truth, and intelligence and it's nice that in the footnote there for verse 23 of Matthew 13, it gives us a topical guide subject, teachable. So it's talking about the good ground means that we're teachable. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't think we know everything already. Isn't that what that means? <laughs> I mean, if you think you already know stuff and nobody has anything to offer, you know, you're not going to be good ground. If we feel like we have all the answers, we have all that we need, we don't need any more, and we ourselves are somehow, you know, sufficient, and we are smarter than everybody else. I was talking to a parent the other day who said he has a grown child who is doing some some things that are really going to cause trouble down the road for them, and it's unfortunate for the child himself. And the father was saying, but, you know, anytime we try to talk to him, he's like the smartest person in the room. He seems to think he knows everything, and so they're impenetrable. We can't get through to them to warn people like that about problems that might be on the horizon. So, I mean, if we're going to be teachable, that means we acknowledge that God knows more than we, that other people can know more than we. What a good way to go through life, to assume that other people have things that they can share that can help to illuminate our understanding or teach us something new. And certainly we want that in our children. Another word that comes to mind that I, I thought of as I was considering this week's lesson was being coachable. And of course, many of us have experience being on teams or having our kids on sports teams or athletic teams or any kind of competition kind of situation where there's a coach. And I've heard so many coaches over the years say that they would rather have a kid who is coachable on their team than one who had all kinds of natural talent. And I think that makes a lot of sense. If we pause for a moment, of course, natural talent's impressive and can do some pretty wonderful things. But if that person with the natural talent thinks that they have all the answers, they're not going to be all that valuable to the team in the end. They're not going to be able to work well with others or to cooperate or collaborate. It's sad that we see some people with great talent who can't be taught or with great native intelligence, but they can't be taught. They think they know it all. They're not willing to consider 
hmm, maybe there's something new here for me. Maybe there's some way that I can stretch and grow and become. So again, we're coming back to humility. So I have some nice statements on humility. This one is from St. Augustine. Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. I think that's great. I think that's a great thought that we have to be teachable. We have to be humble and not think we know in order for us to develop virtue because it shows that we know there is some place for us to go, a place for us to grow or become a better version of ourselves. So St. Augustine continues, hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. That's a really good insight. He's saying that if we don't have humility, then whatever else might appear to be a virtue in us is really just a veneer. It's just, it's fake. Because we can't really develop true virtues without recognizing our need to grow, our need to be taught, our need to to learn and become better versions of ourselves. Now, this is a really nice quote. I don't know who Ralph Sockman is, but he's the one that his statement is attributed to. True humility is intelligent self-respect, which keeps us from thinking too highly or too meanly of ourselves. I think that is a terrific statement. True humility is intelligent self-respect which keeps us from thinking too highly or too meanly of ourselves. Very well stated. I love this, and I'm going to remember this. Intelligent self-respect. What a great phrase. Which recognizes our worth before God. We are his children. We have the potential to be like him. But it also recognizes the need for us to improve, to grow. So we have self-respect knowing that we can become what God invites us to become. We have the potential in us, but we don't rest on our laurels, so to speak. We don't think we have already arrived. We don't think we we have nothing to learn or no way that we can possibly grow or improve. I like this a lot. Another similar idea by Dag Hammarskjöld, humility is just as much the opposite of self-abasement as it is of self-exaltation. It's easy to see the part that is the opposite of self-exaltation. Obviously, humility would be the opposite, exalting ourselves. But he's pointing out that true humility is also the opposite of self-abasement, thinking that we are terrible or we have no potential or that we'll never be good enough. That is also a lack of humility. Isn't that interesting? Again, we're kind of back to that intelligent self-respect, finding that balance between knowing that we have the potential to move forward and become what God invites us to become, but also recognizing that there's a long way for us to go still. And we can be humble enough to to learn, to be taught, to be corrected. So I really like that. Just repeating again, humility is just as much the opposite of self-abasement as it is of self-exaltation. And I see this sometimes as a clinician with people who need to repent. They may acknowledge that we all need to repent, right? All of us fall short. So this is for all of us. But sometimes when we need to repent, we need to feel sorrow for sin. But people can go right past that healthy level of remorse and go too far to despair. And in doing so, sometimes they start to say things that are self-abasing or self 
demeaning. So they say stuff like, I'm a terrible person, or I'll never get it right, or I'll never be good enough, or you know, whatever. And that is not real humility. In fact, it's kind of a denial of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the mercy of the plan. So what are we saying? That I have invented some new kind of evil that Christ can't fix if I repent? In a way, that's a sort of a backwards kind of pride. Gee, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you come up with, with a sin so serious that Christ's atonement can't cover it? Now, we're not talking about the sons of perdition. That's, that's a different category completely. We're talking about the walk of life where we all have need to repent. And, and sometimes our children will do this. You'll see your kids like, I'm a terrible, I'm awful, I'm just such a mess, I'm horrible. That's not healthy. That's not healthy, and it's not humility. It's, it's almost kind of a backwards pride. I'm so terrible, nobody can help me, I'll never get her. And it, it kind of invites too much attention or focus on that person rather than on, like, let's look at the behavior and let's understand that you are a child of God and you have the potential to become what he invites all of us to be. And through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all of us can be sufficiently empowered to reach that potential. There's nobody who will ultimately fall short of the glory of God if we desire it and come to Christ and do what is required to repent and to grow and become and develop that better version of ourselves again and again. This kind of reminds me of Aunt Eller's line from the musical Oklahoma. If you haven't seen that, you know, go watch it sometime. And certainly if your kids haven't seen it, make sure your kids watch it. I mean, I hope you'll enjoy it. It was a family favorite, one of our many family favorites. But the wise aunt of the heroine at a certain big community event is stopping a fight or whatever, and she wants to give a little speech, and she's respected for her wisdom and goodness. And she makes a statement. She says, I want you to learn this all by heart. I don't say I'm no better than anybody else, but I'll be darned if I ain't just as good. And I used to pause back in the old days of VCRs, you know, and videotapes. I would pause it there and I would stop and say, kids, did you hear what she said? That's how our Heavenly Father wants us to feel about ourselves. I don't say I'm no better than anybody else, but I'll be darned if I ain't just as good. Meaning, let's get that balance right. It's not self-abasement and it's certainly not self-aggrandizement. You know, I'm not going to exalt myself and think that I'm better than anybody else. That would be foolish and completely the opposite of humility. But I am not going to think that I am worse. And sometimes because of injuries early in our life, usually, although it can happen at any point, but especially in our developing years, we'll see people who do feel like they're fatally flawed, that somehow they are inadequate, somehow they are less than others. And that needs to be repaired. And it can be. We need to exercise faith on the principles that we're talking about here, that we are all children of God, that he loves each one of us, that we all have the potential to be like him if we follow that covenant path that he has outlined. And he will make sure that everybody on this planet has a fair opportunity to accept that covenant path. We have temples so we can provide these things for everybody who will willingly receive them just at the level that we want. And that's the beauty of this amazing plan, that everybody gets what they want, but added upon is the mercy and the grace of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ and, and the plan. So it's generous. It's generous. We don't need to worry. Now, let me talk uh, just a little bit about, well, I have a couple of other quotes here that I like. By bringing nature into our lives, we invite humility. It's by a man named Richard Move. By bringing nature into our lives, we invite humility. And this reminds me of a story 
that I read years ago about Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the president in the United States many years ago. And in fact, in some respects, has been called maybe perhaps the most popular president that has ever served in that role. He was very well liked and respected and loved by the majority of the population. And for good reasons, he seemed to be a man of, of great character and integrity. But he Apparently, of course, he would entertain lots of dignitaries at the White House. And after dinner, often he would take those dignitaries out into the lawn and look up at the night sky and look at the stars. And he would invite everybody to look up and see the vastness of the universe that at least, you know, the part that is visible in the night sky. And he would ponder that for a while. And then he would turn to those guests and say, all right. I think we're small enough now. We can go back inside. And I think that's so exemplary. Here is a man who had great power, who was in a position of great power and respect, who would go and, you know, really bring himself into nature in order to remember his relative importance in the universe. Now, we are important to God. He has created this planet and this earth for his children. But... We are just a part of huge, endless numbers of creations. And it's good to recognize <laughs> that sometimes that we are, we are small in the, in the scope of all the creations of God. Again, not go too far on either end of that spectrum, right? It's not self-abasement, but it's certainly not self-exaltation. And sometimes nature can really help us to realize how vast and beautiful God's majesty is. This is the last quote. I really like it. Ellen White. A Christian reveals true humility by showing the gentleness of Christ, by being always ready to help others, by speaking kind words and performing unselfish acts, which elevate and ennoble the most sacred message that has come to our world. That's a beautifully stated version of let your light so shine before men that others seeing thy good work will glorify God who is in heaven. In other words, if we're going to really be humble, we will kind of show forth the goodness of Christ, the greatness of the message of Christ, and help others to come to that. So look how beautiful this language A Christian reveals true humility by showing the gentleness of Christ, by being always ready to help others, by speaking kind words and performing unselfish acts, which elevate and ennoble the most sacred message that has come to our world. So in all of this, we give glory to God. And that is a great part of humility is that we recognize that all good things come from Christ, all of them. I've quoted John Pontius several times who says, where do we think our good ideas come from? (laughs) I think that is a great reminder. (laughs) We think we made this stuff up. We think that, no, it's my material. No, it's not my material. This is God's material. (laughs) It is anything I have learned, anything that I have to offer, and I hope you all understand and feel this way, comes from God. All my talents, all my ideas, all the resources at my disposal, they all come from God. Are we not all beggars, King Benjamin reminded us? So let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves or, or start to think that somehow I've created the good in my in my life. It has all been a gift. Now I choose to embrace the truth or not, and that 
is given to us. God gave us that choice so that we can be hearers of the word or not. Let's be good ground. Now, let's focus for a moment on how we can help our children develop these things as well. This is so important because our kids are in a world where they are not being taught much humility. In fact, and I know I've mentioned this before, but back in the 80s, they used to send home these things or magnets or whatever for parents that say like a hundred ways to praise your child. Now, again, don't get me wrong. There is a sweet spot here we're going for. We want our children to feel their worth. It is really important to treat a child with respect and love and kindness and make the world a safe place for them. But I would say that the bigger problem in our society here in the United States, at least, and in much of the Western world, is that that our kids have become a little bit overly elevated. (laughs) And they think a lot of themselves because they are taught this kind of liberation theology that we've talked about before, where they start to think that, that it's all about them. And we hear it in the language. It's like, you do you. Or, you know, what is your truth? As if that can compete with the truth or the giver of all truth, who's God. So we see this real elevation of the self, that expressive individualism that we've talked about. And in fact, one of my most listened to episodes is from the end of the Old Testament, Amos and Obadiah. And if you did get a chance to hear that, I would invite you to go back and listen to it. It it hit a chord with a lot of people because I'm talking about the forces that have really been affecting our children, the philosophies of men that have made them susceptible to this liberation theology, which basically says that they are good enough the way they are and that they don't need to change. They don't need to repent. It it denies the truthfulness of the doctrine of Christ because savior theology is the opposite. Savior theology is that there was a fall and all of us participated willingly in the fall of Adam and Eve in order that we could come to this earth, receive a body and be tested and demonstrate how much of what God invites us to have we are willing to receive. But that, of course, means that God knows more than we do, that God and Christ have a right to say, this is the path. And if you desire all the things that we would like to give you, then you must do it in these in these non-negotiable terms of the covenant, that this is the path. You don't get to create your own truth. You don't do it your own way. You do it my way. And here we have the savior of the world, the lamb without spot, the sinless one who did nothing save his father had done it. Like I would venture to say that Christ's level of light, truth, and intelligence, having been the creator of the heavens and the earth, having been this amazing God, even prior to his coming to this earth, did nothing, say his father told him to do it or had done it before. In other words, he didn't try to invent his own way. So if Christ chose not to be an expressive individual, (laughs) maybe we could talk to our children about how that is not the path of truth, how the path of, of truth and goodness that will lead to life and exaltation is the path of being a humble follower of Christ recognizing that we are receivers, not inventors of truth or of the word. Okay, I'm going to go on here for a second. There's some good ideas that came, many of them came actually from James Dobson, who is a Christian author and a psychologist. He developed a group called Focus on Family and did a lot of good stuff there. I don't think he's affiliated with them anymore, but he's done a lot of family-friendly kinds of projects to help 
strengthen the family. And some of his materials, he talks about the importance of humility for kids. And he said this, I really like this. I have consistently found the root of many relational issues to be the absence of humility. Where humility is lacking, selfishness, anxiety, pride, and insecurities abound. Interesting tie-ins that I agree with 100%. Anxiety, this is not to demonize people who struggle with anxiety. It is just to recognize that there is something that starts to make it a little bit too much about ourselves. We retreat into ourselves when we are focused on our own fears. It Sadly, even though it's, you know, it's a very hurtful situation and we want to help people with anxiety, but it's really not humble. And I think that's a really good insight that we can benefit from, from considering. Dobson continues, I have also seen that many marital intimacy struggles come from the absence of humility. I agree with that too. There's a great deal to think about and talk about if necessary there. We must teach our kids humility from an early age to help them avoid these issues. Now, if our kids are older, don't give up. Go ahead and teach them then. It's easier if we start when they're young, of course. But at any point, we can start to discuss these things with our children and invite them to consider a better way. Dobson continues, teaching kids to understand their thoughts, longings, desires, and emotions helps them observe why they do the things they do. I like that. I talk often of the importance of us to discuss things with our children and to be open in our kind of verbalizing the subtext of life so that we talk about what's underneath just the behavior. Like, what do you think that person is feeling? Or what are you feeling when that happens? Or how, you know, what do you think was behind that when you chose that action? What was what were your feelings about that? So and it really helps kids to gain insight about themselves and to understand where intervention needs to happen in order for us to produce better behavior. And finally, Dobson says, more importantly, establishing a life or culture of prayer in your home is an excellent starting point to soften the heart and train it toward humility. And yes, if we are acknowledging God daily in our homes and before our meals, This does help to establish a hierarchy of incredible importance for our children where we are the humble petitioners to a supreme being who has the power and the desire to bless us. So some of the things that are mentioned in this article that I I thought were useful for children to learn humility were to learn service. And many of us are pretty good about that. I'm really always delighted when I see a young person who's happy to serve or even thinks of ways to serve, you know, to cookies to somebody who's sick or to a new person in the neighborhood or introduce themselves and welcome people. Anyway, that that orientation towards service. And let's not forget they can serve each other. The siblings can serve each other in our homes. And we want to encourage that too. Maybe you want to surprise your sibling by making their bed today or doing their chores and to encourage that or sometimes make a game of it or something so that the kids can start to feel the rewards of serving. It really does help to gender humility. They're willing to do something beyond what is required of them in order to serve others, but to please our Heavenly Father as well. Listening. I I think that is a really important part of humility. I wanted my kids to know this as they grew up, and I used to tell them that everyone has a story. Take time to listen to people's stories. People are fascinating. We might think this person is not that interesting or whatever. We're wrong. If we will listen to others and invite them to tell us who they are, everybody's story ends up being interesting and, and everybody has fascinating parts. 
and we can learn from them and we can recognize the value of others, which again, really helps us remain humble rather than thinking that others might be beneath our interest. Of course, it's important to to show respect to others along the same line, you know, of, of listening. And listening is a mark of respect. So we don't talk over others or interrupt them. I was asked by one of our VIP subscribers on Patreon to do some extra content on listening. So that's going to be coming in this next month. Another point to help our children be humble is to help them desire growth. And again, it's the recognition that they're not finished yet. There's some really nice materials by a woman named Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. I think I may have mentioned her before. She has a TED Talk that I think is called The Power of Yet. She also wrote a book along the same lines. I haven't read the book, but I like the TED Talk. I like the idea. She has a lot of good content there for parents especially, but for all of us to have this growth mindset, this desire for growth, recognizing that I'm not finished yet. Often in counseling, um, people might you know, recognize some of their limitations, their current limitations or weaknesses. And they'll say things like, well, I'm just not good at that. And I always add the word, well, yet, you're not good at it yet, but you're still breathing and you're capable and you're child of God. So anyway, the capacity is there. Let's have that orientation toward what we can become. We can become a better version of ourselves again, again, through the atonement of Christ. So it's really important for our children to see that, that life is about change. It's about growth. We can, if we try, become better at anything that we apply ourselves to. And that is the goal, is to get from where we begin to where God invites us to be. That requires lots of growth, lots of stretching. Being honest is a really important part of humility. And again, it's not my truth or whomever's truth, but it's a willingness to be accountable to the reality of life. What really is? I, I think that's a very good time to humility. Seeing life through a lens of invitations rather than inconveniences can help our children learn humility. This is what produces low-maintenance, high-yield people, m- meaning that when we hit those walls, we when we encounter failure, when we trip and fall, or we encounter roadblocks or stumbling stones or whatever, that we don't panic. We don't fall apart. We don't become completely discouraged to quit. But we see these as invitations rather than inconveniences. These are opportunities to grow, to implement that desire for growth we just talked about. So rather than being easily stopped or fragile, our kids can become anti-fragile as they recognize, oh, here's a challenge or here's something that I didn't succeed in. Well, what can I learn from it? How can I get lemonade from those lemons in my own journey by being teachable, coachable, anti-fragile, and not, again, not falling apart or, or getting too upset. Some people get really irritated or frustrated by hassles, and that's not useful. It's not useful if every time something doesn't go the way we want, which is like most of the time on planet, right? <laughs> then then we, we're going to, you know, be irritated or, or upset or fall apart, as I said. So this, this is a really good tie-in to anti-fragility. Here's a good one. Seeing endless possibilities to love others rather than criticize. And again, this should start at home. Endless possibilities to express appreciation, gratitude, thanks and and to compliment others rather than 
looking for things to criticize. And this is just a habit that if we help our children and, you know, we can incentivize it in appropriate ways or make games of it sometimes to, to lighten the mood, but to also really focus on like, how are we going to show appreciation for others and see that we have these endless possibilities to love rather than criticize. Criticism is death. It really does hurt not just children, anybody. And I really would invite all of us to look in the mirror and see if I have a problem with criticism, because we can stop that to great effect and great blessings come when we eliminate criticism. Also wanting the best for others and and think of our children again, helping to teach them and encourage them to support others, to support, to cheer on and to celebrate the victories of their siblings starting there, and then, of course, other friends as well. It manages competitiveness. Now, there's nothing wrong with competing with ourselves. And I love the idea of the personal best, that we can become better at things and we can see our progress as we invest effort. And there's nothing wrong either. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-sports. I'm not anti-situations where, yes, sometimes there's a winner and a loser. I'm not against that, but it's kind of like learning how to win and learning how to lose. And we all know that the basic elements of this, I was just talking to somebody in my ward, a friend in my ward who told me that her kids have been on teams where the coaches have have been so foul towards the, the players themselves, let alone like the crowd or whatever, and that she's been to games where these, these kids will like flip off the crowd or, or <laughs> I mean, each other or the other team. I mean, whether they're winning or losing, they don't understand humility. And that there is much to be gained from these opportunities and experiences, but it seems like we're kind of missing the mark. I was so impressed because her husband coaches a high school team and he has a like his number, well, his first easy rule for them was, but it wasn't all that easy for them to come around, was no swearing on my court, no swearing at my practices. So impressed by this. And apparently those kids had to run a lot of suicides for a while as they learned to gain mastery over their language because he said, that's not how I'm going to treat you. And that's not how you're going to treat each other. And you're certainly not going to disrespect me. So these kids have gained a great love for this coach because he demonstrates his own self-control and his willingness to treat people with respect, and he teaches them to do the same. I think that's so wonderful and sadly not super common in our athletic arenas these days, but we can teach our own children how to win, how to lose, how to celebrate the victories of others and and support others and not have to to be the best or or even if we are the best or they, our kids are the best at something, to not gloat, to not think that that makes them of greater value than others, but that they can they can help and lift and teach and celebrate and encourage others as well. Okay, uh, there are lots of other ways to, to demonstrate empathy and with our children, right? I mean, having a, a pet can be is often a suggestion, but only if they take good care of that pet and treat that pet kindly. And that, but that can be a great opportunity for kids to learn some empathy, which is a, a, a nice connected part to humility to realize that we're not the only ones on the planet. And it's not just our feelings that matter, but other people have needs. And I can be humble enough to step back and recognize that and promote other people's enjoyment of life or or the good that they need to experience as well. Uh, growing a garden was an interesting one that I came across that can help people or help our children learn humility. 
And I like that. I think it's really good because they're investing some time and effort and they have this stewardship to care for a growing living thing. And then they can see the yield that comes from that if they are willing to stay the course and be humble enough to wait for the harvest. There's a nice uh, tie-in, of course, with delayed gratification there, which is so wonderful for our children and ourselves. Of course, we can help our children try to learn to put themselves in other people's shoes and see things from other people's perspectives. That also contributes to humility. Dads play a very important role in the development of empathy with children. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this right now, but I am going to say that it actually comes down to the fact that kids are, are very aware of the differences between men and women from an, even from infancy. There are studies that show that a, a baby can tell if it's being held by a man or a woman because we hold them differently and our bodies are different. So pretty early kids learn that dad is bigger and stronger and has a harder body and greater strength and so on. And so, you know, to be honest, he can be dangerous. Dads can be dangerous. That's why God has put such important obligations on men to not injure or destroy, but to build and to protect and defend. At any rate, kids know this difference. And you know, there's that rough and tumble play that dads do with kids that is so good for kids' development. And one of the benefits of it is that kids can see that like dad could be hurtful if he chose to be, but he doesn't choose to be. He harnesses the strength in himself in order to be protective of our safety as his family. So he treats mom with respect. He is kind and and careful with mom to make sure that she is safe. And he is kind to the children so that they feel safe and they feel his protection rather than the danger that he could represent to them. So this it becomes so important that fathers, well, it's important for all of us, but it's really a wonderful gift that fathers can give to their children. Because if dad has the capacity to be dangerous to mom and the children, but he's not, he's the one who provides safety and protection always, then that really helps kids harness the strength in them to become empathetic and humble. Of course, of fundamental importance in helping our children be humble is to help them develop an appropriate respect for parental authority. We want them to recognize, honor, and yield to parental authority that is appropriately administered. We're not talking about hurt or abusive parents. We're talking about parents who desire the well-being of their children. They don't have to be perfect, but they want to help their children. And our children need to grow up recognizing that parental authority. It is really difficult for children to be humble towards God if they don't have feelings of humility toward their parents, meaning that they recognize that the parents are providing many things that are essential for that child's well-being, and that the parent then has a stewardship to also teach the child and regulate their behavior so that they can grow in wisdom and in goodness. Now, I spent quite a bit of time when I was a guest on Follow Him for the book of Daniel back in the Old Testament last year. It was in part two of the Follow Him podcast on Daniel that I talked a lot about authoritative parenting. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it will be very helpful in teaching our children to be respectful of authority, which does generate humility. If they're always in charge or if they always dismiss our authority's parents, 
if they're too quick to like, well, forget it. I'm going to ignore what you're saying. I'm not even going to look to you or acknowledge that you said it or, you know, you don't have any right to tell me what to do or why should I have to follow your rules? Those kinds of things are really setting our kids up to not have the kind of humility that can help them receivers of the word or receiver of light, truth, and intelligence. We do not want to handicap our children that way. Now, our society has become very permissive, generally speaking. So if that is something that we struggle with, let's address it. Let's, I mean, I do have a lot of information in that podcast on Daniel, so I invite you to go back and then look up other ways to help use appropriate structures of consequence so that our children can learn to yield to appropriate authority. And then we don't abuse that authority as their parents. And this can really help them to recognize the need for us to be humble before our Father in Heaven and humble before the Savior, recognizing what they give to us, what we owe to them. Remember that wonderful verse that reminds us that our lives are not our own. We were bought with a price. There's humility in that understanding. But if they're not humble towards their parents, they are very likely not going to feel that. And forgive me, I'm going to make another pitch for some of the great gospel music that is out there that helps our kids to celebrate and praise God and the Savior Jesus Christ. It can help them to to feel that love and respect. But it's not going to go too far if we don't include some of these other elements that can can really work together to create humility in us and in our children. And in doing all this, we are pushing back against liberation theology that elevates the self. And we are helping our children be more receptive to the doctrine of Christ, which can and will save. I think it's also really important to put this in the context of controlling the natural man. Again, from King Benjamin's marvelous address, Mosiah 3.19, the natural man is an enemy to God. If we do not help our children to harness their natural man, to be humble, to be obedient, the Spirit will not always strive with them. And this is something we're going to talk about here in Luke 13, where we're going to wrap up. So I'm going to just hold that thought. But if if we don't help our children and incentivize them appropriately to control themselves, to control their appetites, desires, and passions... First of all, that makes them so much more successful in life. It makes them so much more pleasant to be around. They're going to have higher quality friends. They are going to be much more able to tap into good resources for life if they control that natural man. And if they do so, the spirit can be with them because the spirit is offended by people who are just yielding to the natural man. And if our children don't have the Spirit. The Spirit cannot witness to them of the truthfulness of the principles that we are teaching. This is so important. We can't make anybody believe. We can't take testimony from our own hearts and minds and place it in somebody else. But we can, if we teach our children to be obedient, if we teach them humility through that obedience and acknowledgement of authority, our own and then God's greatest of all, the Spirit cannot witness them of the truthfulness of the importance of being honest, of being chaste, of being modest, of being kind, of being obedient to the commandments of God. And if they don't have that personal witness that comes to them from the Spirit, when they're 
on their own, all kinds of challenges are much greater than we would wish them to be. So let's not rob our children of that witness of the Spirit. But if they are kind of in that natural man state and they're not obedient to us, they're not kind to each other, then they chase the Spirit away and they won't have that extra access. And then when they leave our homes, they don't really take the Spirit with them because they are still too offensive to the Spirit. Now, that's not 100% of the time, and God is kind, and he will reach out. They're children of the covenant, and if our children are already grown in the house, there's no reason to give up, because God has made promises to those of us who tried to teach the gospel to our children. Maybe we didn't have all the skills or the resources available for us to, but we did the best we could, and God will honor that. So this is not doomsday talk. Plus, we also know that there are many wonderful parents whose children exercise their agency in unfortunate ways and rebel. God the Father has rebellious children. He's a perfect parent. So this is not about blaming or beating up the parent or ourselves as the parent if our children are not always making the right choices. We just need to keep trying to improve our skills and to become a better version of ourselves as parents and then learning how to be the parents of adult children, which is different from being the parents of younger children. We have to recognize that they are adults and not try to control or demand, but we can still have an influence if we do it right. So anyway, lots to that subject. We can go on about parenting forever. Let's go on. Oh, you know what? I'm going to put a plug for reading good literary fiction and helping our children find worthwhile books to read, especially historical fiction, like biographies as well of historical characters, because this can really help them develop empathy too. Please don't be misunderstood in this next statement. I know there's a balance in here always. Our kids can read a lot of different things that are worthwhile. But I really am a little concerned that so many of our youth are getting caught up in reading almost exclusively, or at least a ton of fantasy. And there's a lot of fantasy fiction out there. And those genres don't really teach empathy. And there are studies on this, interestingly enough. But it's the the stories of people's struggles where our kids can vicariously learn empathy, especially, like I said, from, from historical accounts, or at least historical fiction that talks about maybe kids in difficult circumstances, and that can really help to develop empathy too. So don't rob yourself of that opportunity if it's something you can do. Okay, let's talk about Luke 13, because there's some really nice, nice verses here that I want to just touch on before we wrap up today. Uh, First, there is a very clear statement that Christ makes to us in verse 3 of Luke 13. I tell you, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The message, and it's right here in the heading of chapter 13, in the summary, Jesus teaches, repent or perish. That is Savior theology. This is the doctrine of Christ, that we are all fallen into this mortal sphere, but God has a plan prepared for us and a Savior provided so that we can come back to him. But that is on conditions of repentance. So that requires humility. It requires us to understand that we are not a finished product yet, that we don't have 
it all figured out. We need to be teachable. We need to be coachable. We need to be humble and learn and improve and grow. And that we hopefully are open to that and eager for that, not resistant to it, not rebellious about it and thinking that like, I can't believe that God wants me to change. No, he invites us to change so that we can conform to the image of his perfect son. And he is mighty to save us. So we don't have to do that alone. It is not beyond our reach. Sometimes people get so overwhelmed by the idea of becoming like Christ, but he will help us. He does not leave us alone. He is with us in the trenches. Whether we always feel that he is there or not, he is always there when we are trying to be diligent and not perfect. This is not about perfectionism, which can be a real problem, as you know. It's not about being anxious. It's not about worrying about the timetable. God will give us plenty of time. If we choose this path, he will bring us in. There's this beautiful verse. I'm going to kind of, well, actually, let me not skip verses 23 and 24 of Luke 13. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Again, it's not because God denies any. It's because we might limit ourselves. We might only accept so much truth or so much humility. We might be willing to only obey certain commandments and not others. We might quibble about where the standards are or quibble about what the prophets say or quibble about history of the church and not be willing to receive all that God makes available to us. How tragic is that? And we really want to teach our children this early on, the sooner the better, right? I'm going to say this. I mean, I think, again, there's a sweet spot, a way to see this that does not have to discourage us. And I'm going to quote, as I often have, Harold B. Lee, who said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Both of those components are very important. Some people who do tend to struggle with their personal, intelligent self-respect, that great phrase we talked about, and do maybe feel like they are less or that they are somehow less capable than others or inadequate in some ways, can be discouraged by the gospel and by the fact that there is a straight gate in a narrow way. And few there be that find it. Christ tells us this again and again. There, there are not, I mean, there will be many people in the kingdom, of, in the celestial kingdom even, but relatively, they will be few because most people don't choose to pursue that path and endure in that path and change sufficiently. Over the years as a counselor, uh, that I have been a counselor, many people have asked me, do you really believe people can change? And of course I do. I wouldn't be a counselor if I didn't believe that people could change. And of course... The atonement of Jesus Christ is all about the gift of change. It provides for each of us potential to become a new creature, to be born again. Of course, I believe in change. But that said, I always add that change is hard and many people resist it. So not that many people continue to change sufficiently to complete the entire journey toward the celestial kingdom, or even the highest level of the celestial kingdom, which requires continual change, continual humility, a willingness and a desire for correction, a willingness to be corrected and a desire to receive correction. That's 
I remember somebody defining meekness that way, that meekness was a desire for correction. And not that many people really love to be corrected. So so that's what the Savior is saying. You've got to enter in by the straight path. And not that many people are there. I've said this before. Many times I would tell my children, if you're on a crowded road, turn around because you're almost certainly going the wrong way. It is a straight and narrow way. And relatively few there be that find it. I've quoted this before back in the DNC when we talked about section 76. I made a point of this, but this is from verse 109, where Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon have seen a vision of all three kingdoms and have described them for us. And then they say, kind of as a postscript, in fact, because this is verse 109, so it's pretty late in this section, that as they go back and say again about the celestial kingdom, that the inhabitants of the celestial would be as innumerable as the stars in the firmament of heaven or as the sand upon the seashore. Brothers and sisters, God is telling us that most of the inhabitants of this earth will not choose to change enough to enter the celestial kingdom. Some will choose to change enough to enter the terrestrial kingdom, and those are wonderful people. But if we want all of it, we can have all of it. We have to keep changing. We have to seek and accept correction. We have to reach further, not in anxiety, not in fear, but in confidence that if we give ourselves to Christ, he can make of us something marvelous and something celestial. We've got to keep pedaling and let the Lord steer. It is something that God denies no one. If there are relatively few in the celestial kingdom, it is not because God is guarding the gate and throwing people out. It's because he has invited all and few receive that level of his word. Few receive that level of, of the fulfillment of their potential. But all of us could. And let me be clear. We want to look at the real terminology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All are saved except the sons of perdition because all of us get more than we deserve. As we've said before, even the most wicked of God's children will have to pay the price of their sins in hell because they would not repent and allow Christ to carry that cost for them. Nevertheless, once they have paid the uttermost farthing, they will be redeemed from hell and come forth in resurrection that gives them a perfect body that will never age or get hurt or sick again. And the measure of glory that they were willing to receive, whether it's celestial or terrestrial, they will get the measure of glory they were willing to receive. And brothers and sisters, that is a generous plan. That is salvation. All will be saved because of God's goodness, because of his mercy. And that should comfort us if we feel afflicted. All are saved, except the sons of perdition who with their eyes wide open reject it. That's different. All the rest of us are saved. So God does succeed in bringing salvation to his beloved children through the atonement of Jesus Christ, even to the rebellious. Nevertheless, if we want all that he has, there are non-negotiable terms. The covenant path, it is available to all. But only those who truly desire it and continue in that desire in meekness and humility will be brought in through the power of the atonement, the enabling power of the atonement that makes up for our deficiencies, whatever they are. 
It can turn our weaknesses into strengths, and it will do that. It will heal us of all our troubles and infirmities and limitations if we allow Christ that access to our hearts and minds. If we receive all of it, if we are good ground, the harvest is real, and the harvest will be given in due time and season of the Lord. Now, this tender verse toward the end of Luke, we have to talk about for just a moment, verse 34. Christ laments the fact that too many do not receive him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and sownest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Again, Christ is always offering this. His arms are stretched out all the day long. We can have as much as we choose to have. We can have all of it. All are invited. None are denied. We're the only ones who determine that, or how much we can receive or how little we will end up with. Now, look how beautifully Christ finishes this idea in the third Nephi chapter 10, verse 6. O ye house of Israel, whom I have spared, how oft will I gather you, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, if ye will repent and return unto me with full purpose of heart. So it's a little sadder version of that verse in Luke 13, because Christ is saying that he's commenting on how many times he has been rejected by his own, by the very people that he offers everything to. They turn away from what he offers. And yet, if we will repent and come unto him full purpose of heart, he will gather us. Have to share this tender experience that Chris and I had on a beach in Hawaii, that garden island there in Hawaii, beautiful place. Those of you who've been there know that there are chickens all over the place. They're allowed to kind of roam the island, and it's pretty fun and colorful to see those chickens everywhere. One time that we were there, we were sitting on sort of a grassy spot before the sand by the beach. Beautiful, beautiful day that we were there. And we saw one of those kawaii chickens come, and she had recently hatched 13 chicks. 13. It was really hard to count them because they were just scrambling around like they were like moving like water almost, you know. In fact, we were taking pictures and trying to count them on the screen so we could see how many there were. And there were 13. It was adorable. And someone had spilled some ice there on the grass and so they were pecking at the ice for quite a while. So we got to enjoy these beautiful little chicks with their mother. And then at some, you know, unknown signal, unknown to us, chicken signal, this hen mother gathered all her chicks under her wings. I don't know what she did, but they knew to come and they came into her feathers. And those 13 chicks virtually disappeared. They were protected and enfolded in her wings and in her feathers. It was astonishing to see. I, of course, could not help think, thinking of these beautiful verses. She protected her chicks. Every once in a while, there'd be a little leg that would poke out or a little head that would pop out and then it would go back into her feathers. I was so touched. My heart, you know, just almost burst with love for such a wonderful, loving God and such a merciful Savior who invite all and deny none. If we will become fertile ground, good ground, teachable, 
coachable, humble, and teach our children. So there's no limit to what God can give us. He will gather us as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings. Brothers and sisters, we can do it. We can choose glory. We can choose to build Zion, and we will be his forever. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.